You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Back. Join your hosts and... And Kevin, that's me. The second and fourth Friday of each month on The Sewer Show. Between 5.30 and 6.30pm. Here on 3CR Community Radio. Radio. This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions for the unemployed and underemployed. Everyone in our community has value. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back again this Friday, the something of something. Anne, how you doing? <laughs> Kevin, it's August. <laughs> well, it, it was supposed to be getting warmer and it just, it, it just hasn't, that's, but that's pretty boring talk. We're talking about the weather. We should be talking about inflation, Anne. <laughs> we can warm ourselves up with a nice heated debate on inflation. <laughs> uh, do, do you know what I'm noticing is like uh, everybody freaks out when inflation happens because we haven't had inflation for so long, mm-hmm. not since the the Keating years and, and it was sustained growth and, and everything was under control. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden we've got inflation, everybody's going, whoa, because the last time we had inflation was, <laughs> was back in the 70s and the 80s. And guess what started the inflation uh, episode last time? What? Oil. Oil. Uh, OPEC put up their prices, you know, that was the, the oil producers. They said, right, yeah, we're going to price gouge, we're going to increase our profits and they yanked up the price of oil. OPEC was thumbing their noses at the West. And what happened last time was uh, in response, the, the unions were strong. So prices are going up. And so the union said, well, if everything's going up in price, we need to increase wages to not be left behind. Mm-hmm. So when wages went up, that affected the price of everything because wages were included in the price of the product that you bought. So then the prices went up, then wages would go up again, and that's what started a wages spiral. So there was a supply-side inflationary push by the oil gouging, yep. and then that was continued by a wage price spiral. It was exasperated by a wage price spiral, exactly. And that level of inflation was pretty dramatic, wasn't it? It was pretty steep. I was a kid, and I just remembered that petrol prices went up enormously, and everybody in my house was freaking out, and Dad was driving a Valiant that, that was <laughs> pretty heavy on fuel. Yeah, you know, I would never have thought that I had inflation trauma. (laughs) But as a kid, I remember having this conversation with mum one day because she was always complaining, every time I go to the supermarket, the prices have increased. And I remember saying to her, well, why don't you just buy boxes and boxes of tins of tomato soup and all the other things that we need and just store them up in the pantry? Then she was like, no, we can't do that because I don't have enough storage space to do something like that. And ever since then, I sort of had half a sense that if you had enough room in the house, you really should buy a whole bunch of tins of tomatoes and baked beans and whatever else and put them in your cupboard. Don't say that, Anne. <laughs> Don't tell people to go and raid the supermarkets. We've just gotten over the whole COVID thing. That's. I actually had inflation trauma. I just realised that. <laughs> do, you know, do you know what I remember? When uh, petrol went up, there was a service station that my dad used to buy his petrol from called Solo. And... I think Solo was a petrol station that was owned by the unions and they bought it to keep the price of petrol down. Oh. 
Hmm. I, I think that's it. I'd, I'd love somebody to double check. Hmm. So the big difference was that when the oil thing hit in the 70s, unions and, and labour were organised and strong mm. and they, they pushed their wages up in a response to the inflationary pressures on their wages. It's reasonable, but that did start a spiral. Mm-hmm. This inflation episode is driven by profiteering. It's driven by companies who are putting up their prices because they can, because there's been some supply shortages and there's lots of demand and so they're just increasing their prices. It doesn't cost them any more to produce the petrol or the oil. It's got nothing to do with wages this time. It's all about profiteering. So we put all this focus on wages. We say, oh, you can't put wages up because if you put wages up, it's going to cause inflation. But for some reason, it's okay for companies to price gouge. That's acceptable. But if workers want to increase their wages to try and keep up with the inflation, oh, well, that's terrible. And that's going to cause uh, even worse problem. So what you're talking about Uh, these different stories that are in circulation at the moment with these different explanations for what is causing inflation. And I have to say, Kevin, whenever we talk about inflation, I always think back to the Anne of about four or five years ago when if anyone started talking about things like inflation, that was my cue to leave the room. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so I had absolutely no interest in this economic discussion. I just think back to the end of a few years ago because I think a lot of people would just say, well, what's this all got to do with me and I can't figure it out and there's just all these people making up all these different stories about inflation and I don't know what they're talking about. You know, what I would say now to that Anne of a few years ago is if you're less than, say, 500 years old, Mm -hmm. whether you like it or not, you have been born into this grand war that's going on. And this war was identified by Karl Marx. (laughs) Right, yep. And it is the war between the classes within a capitalist economy. And what we're seeing with this latest round of these different stories, they are part of the latest battle in this war. Um, And I think for people who are trying to sort their way through this debate, it's really useful um, in fact, I find it a bit of a game now to to look at who is saying what is causing inflation. And if you hear someone saying that it's wages, rising wages is causing inflation and we've got rising wages because we've got a shortage of workers and we've got a shortage of workers because we just had this COVID pandemic lockdown and we lost about a million workers as they all went back to their home countries. And if people are saying, well, you know, during the lockdowns, the government was too generous with its spending. So the workers that were left here, the government gave them too much money and they've been spending that money and driving up prices. And those causes are what economists call the demand side, which is the demand for goods and services, which is reflected in the spending. If you look at who's saying those are the causes of inflation, usually they're the conservative economists and they're the ones that are informed by this neoclassical thinking. Yeah, the, the only problem with their argument is that there's no data to support it. <laughs> real, real wages are actually going backwards. Um, they've been flat for years. They're not keeping up with inflation. So real wages are actually going backwards. So anybody that tells you that um, increases in wages are causing this inflation don't know what they're talking about. If they say that, ask them for the data. Uh, ask him for the stats. <laughs> they don't exist. Either they don't know what they're talking about or they have an agenda. Now, yes, the agenda is that if 
if there's a short supply in this uh, market-driven neoliberal economy that we live in, then market forces mean that it's perfectly okay to price gouge and put your profits up. And continue to depress wages. Yeah. And, and what we need to do is we need to let everybody know it's a con. If they talk about wages and causing inflation, they're wrong. You know, it is a thing to have demand-side inflation, as we saw in the 70s. There was that wage price spiral. Uh, but the thing that the conservative or the neoclassical economists with their <laughs> agenda is that they use this idea of demand-side inflation when it isn't demand-side inflation for those reasons that we just said. And so if you see some economists and they're talking about supply-side inflation at the moment, usually they're the um, the more progressive economists or, say, the heterodox economists or the post-Keynesians or even our favourite economists, the MMT economists. Or the economists who aren't lying, would that be them as well? <laughs> I mean, you, you don't have to be progressive to acknowledge the facts. Mm-hmm. All the stats point towards this. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. So the supply side, what they're talking about, for example, is with food. And they're saying, well, locally in Australia, if you've had floods in areas where you normally grow your food, or if you've had bushfires in areas where you normally grow your food, then you're going to have a disruption to your food supply and that will push prices up. Or if you've got, say, a war in the Ukraine and you've had past governments who've said to gas supply companies in Australia, that you can take the gas out of Australia and then sell it back to the locals for the same price that you sell it on the international market. (laughs) Where you're you're price gouging because there's short supply. Exactly. Again, it's a supply side issue of your energy costs going up that is causing the current inflation. But the important thing with the gas thing to realise, though, is that it doesn't cost them anything more to produce gas when there's a war in Ukraine. Mm -mm. It's exactly the same process. They drill a hole and pull it out of the ground and stick it in a tank and ship it off somewhere. It doesn't get more expensive because there's a war on Ukraine. It just means that there's a supply side shortage and they can jack the prices up because people are prepared to pay more because there's not much around. It's not natural. It's price gouging. It's profiteering. Mm -hmm. So if you're wondering why inflation is going up at the same time as these companies are recording record profits, (laughs) there might be a connection. (laughs) Yes. So it was really interesting to me to hear longtime student of economics, Wayne McMillan, talking about this issue. And, and Wayne is one of these people who will question anything an economist says to him. <laughs> and so we can have a listen to the second half of my conversation with Wayne McMillan. This is the, the same Wayne McMillan as we had on last show. At 15, I decided to leave school without a school certificate. Mm-hmm. And I, I worked in, in whatever work I could find until around about 1973, 74, when Australia had its first major recession since the Great Depression. I was eventually laid off and unemployed. Mm-hmm. Around about 1980 or 81, I went to Sydney Tech to do a welfare work certificate course. Mm-hmm. I was very lucky to come into contact with the brother of a well-known journalist. Of course, being the person that I am, I kept asking lots of questions <laughs> about inflation, about other things, and 
He said to me, well, if you want to know in depth about these questions, why don't you do a degree? I said to him, oh, I don't even have a school certificate. He said to me, that shouldn't stop you. <laughs> so at age 27, I got into Sydney University. Mm. I studied economics. Always I'd had an interest in economics, even when I was at school. And I did a lot of reading. I mean, I was very interested in socialism and in Marxism. So I, I had some exposure to that. But um, I never really uh, looked at economics except from a very conventional mainstream uh, point of view. When I first discovered, I guess, the beginnings of modern monetary theory, I was a big fan of two economists. One was Raja Jananka at the University of Western Sydney, Professor Raja Jananka, and the other was Professor Bill Mitchell at the University of Newcastle. I was interested in labour economics, and as far as I was concerned, they were the two outstanding labour economists in Australia. I saw something written by Bill Mitchell, which actually turned everything upside down. <laughs> uh, when I first actually went to Bill, I said to Bill, this doesn't make sense, it's nonsense. <laughs> and he said to me, you just think again, Wayne, go over again and think again. So he's, he's studied economics. He describes himself as a lifetime student of economics. Mm -hmm. He has some formal education about these things. Yes. Yeah, so in our previous show, we talked about there's a difference between how neoclassical or mainstream economists versus heterodox or the post-Keynesian and MMT economists, how there's a difference in how they talk about unemployment. And in the second half of our conversation, we'll talk about how they have very different ideas about inflation. Excellent. So let's have a listen. So it might be worth stopping and having a look at this whole interest rate discussion because it is an issue that we're seeing a lot in the media at the moment. Workers have been doing it very, very tough. Wage gains have been very, very small over the last 20-odd years or so, and we need an increase in the wages. But look what happens as soon as, you know, you increase wages. The central bank then panics and puts up interest rates. Australians need to prepare for higher, be prepared for higher interest rates. Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe, speaking on ABC's 7.30, 14th of June 2022. Inflation's high. It's too high. At the moment, it's 5%, and by the end of the year, I expect inflation to get to 7%. That's a very high number, and we need to be able to chart a course back to 2 to 3% inflation. Which means they're choking off any new investment, because if businesses want to expand, that means they're going to have to pay a high rate of interest for a loan and eventually it might even create more unemployment by doing that. The other thing also is that ordinary people, if you've got a mortgage or you've maxed your credit card and interest rates go up, that means you've got less money to spend. So what it means is when you use interest rates, it's like hitting a nut with a sledgehammer. So the uh, Reserve Bank of Australia, they're increasing interest rates the heterodox economists, including the MMT economists, are saying that this is completely the wrong thing to do and it's going to be not just useless but counterproductive. 
step us through the mindset of the Reserve Bank Governor and other people who've been calling for this raising of interest rates. Well, you've got to remember that Philip Lowe and most of the Reserve Bank economists in there are from the neoclassical framework. Inflation's high. It's too high. They are thinking that because recently there's been a wage uh, increase through the Commission, the the Fair Work Commission for Ordinary Workers, that that's going to have an impact on inflation, which is a very modest increase considering the wage restraint that ordinary workers have had to maintain for the last 10 or 15 years. In fact, there isn't a a wage explosion like we had in the 70s. What we've had over the last few years is because of COVID, we've had supply chain distortions. And so we have an increase in food, an increase in oil, and of course, petrol costs and things like that. And that's where the inflation has come from. It hasn't come from wage growth. So the workers are being blamed for the inflation because of this very small increase in wages that you're describing. And what you're saying is, no, it's not this increase in wages that is driving the inflation. It's what economists call the supply side. It is, because we've had distortions there. A lot of our supplies and some of our imports into goods have come from from China. Because of COVID over there, they've recently had a lockdown. Uh, Transport ships coming in and out have been held up. Then you've had the Ukraine war. Russia has cut bad, being the second major oil supplier in the world and one of the largest in natural gas. Europe and the rest of the world is facing problems with, with that. I think, for example, OPEC has got a lot to answer for, which is a cartel of oil producing nations. They have been price gouging and some of the big companies also, either in the United States and other countries, and in Australia here, they've actually been marking up prices, making huge profits and blaming it upon COVID and blaming it upon the Ukraine war, when in fact they've been price gouging. So price gouging... Price gouging is where you you push up your prices because you can do it because you've got a market power. You're either a monopoly or you're part of an oligopoly, an oligopoly being a number of big players in a particular industry. If Australia is an exporter of gas and coal, why should what's happening in the Ukraine affect our energy costs? Wouldn't these uh, suppliers have had that market power before COVID? That's a good question because mm. our gas industry is more worried about exports than worried about the domestic market. Mm-hmm. We pay more here internally for gas than what the cost is for countries that we export to. That's not workers' wages. That's the kind of contracts that a exporter gets to have. That's right. Well, the exporters are making more money and charging us more here. We also have a, a tax on fuel. Mm-hmm. I mean, now, whether we reduce that uh, for a short period of time or we could do something there to reduce the cost of petrol right. for a period of time. Right. A sensible way of dealing with inflation would be, for example, to reduce the fuel tax, not to raise interest rates. Yeah, yeah. We could use one of those commissions uh, to look at prices, to do an investigation, to monitor those prices. So again, this comes back to the use of the government's capacity to regulate. It's not about the central bank raising interest rates. I just keep harping on about this. All the central bank is concerned about is 
we've got to keep inflation in a certain band, okay? Say, at the most, somewhere between 2 to 3 or 4%. We could have 5% inflation here in Australia and it wouldn't be a terrible problem. We could manage that quite nicely. It wouldn't be terrible. Mm. How do you get away with saying that? Because I know a lot of people think of inflation as a bad thing. So how is it that you can be so relaxed about it? Well, because we don't have um, a wage outbreak. I mean, if we were having a wage outbreak, okay, I could understand that might be a bit of a problem. But there's no wages outbreak. Uh, wages have been very stagnant over a long period of time. So it's not wages that are the problem at the moment. I think in time, probably, these supply chain distortions will rectify and we'll find that the cost of some staple items, food and petrol and gas and things like that, that'll come down probably. So I don't know about gas, that'll depend on the government intervening in there and kicking the backsides of the organisations that are price gouging. But certainly I think once uh, China starts to open up again in terms of its uh, exports, we'll find that these supply chain distortions will rectify themselves. See, what this is all telling me is that inflation is quite a complex thing and it can have many causes. So you've got to sort of look at the details. And I guess that's why you're calling the interest rate thing a sledgehammer because basically it's not fine-tuning, it's just doing a big whack across the whole economy. Uh, Interest rate rises, unfortunately, have a disproportionate impact on those already doing it tough. Treasurer Jim Chalmers, speaking at a press conference on the 7th of June, 2022. And when you have an economy uh, which is characterised in part uh, by skyrocketing costs of living, including spiking prices for energy and groceries, uh, you can see that today's decision uh, will make it that much harder for a number of Australians. And in fact, it will shut the economy down. If we keep increasing interest rates, you'll shut the economy down and we'll go into a recession. And it looks like that could be a possibility, a strong possibility, if the central bank continues to raise interest rates again. So it seems like they see themselves as navigating between a fairly mild level of inflation, because I think we're just over 5% or so at the moment, or a recession. They seem to have like just an on-off button and that's about it. Yeah, well, the headline rate, okay, is around about 5%, but the underlying rate wouldn't be that high. But the government, uh, because it says the Reserve Bank is independent, when in fact, if it wanted to, it could actually do a bit more to influence the Reserve Bank because really the Reserve Bank is never independent of government at all because it relies on the Treasury and Basically, it doesn't make decisions in isolation. It's a nonsense to think it can. But the Reserve Bank, all it's concerned about at the moment is inflation. It's not concerned about unemployment. It thinks that by raising the interest rates as it has, that will put a lid on inflation and it won't cause a downturn in the economy. But I'm not so sure about that. My name's Juniper. I'm an economist at the University of Newcastle, and you're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back on Radio 3CR.
So fiddling around with raising interest rates is a bit of an, a dangerous proposition by the sounds of it. Yes, it'd be far better to cut back in spending or to tax or to introduce price controls, perhaps all three, to reduce inflation rather than to do that. Mm. Much better. Problem is, I don't think we're at a stage at where the government should be cutting back. If we should be taxing, I think we should be taxing those that, that have actually been doing the price gouging. <laughs> and also the people who, who have benefited individually from uh, the price gouging and also the chief executive officers of some of the biggest companies where their remuneration packages have increased dramatically, exponentially, mm -hmm. in compared to ordinary wages, maybe 400% over mm. the last 10 or 15 years. If you were taxing those extreme incomes, would you be doing that to tackle inflation or for other reasons? I'd be doing it um, to stop them from taking resources away from the public sector. If you tax them individually, individual people, you know, you're taking the capacity for them to spend, to use resources that could be used productively in the public sector. If we're competing with the private sector for resources, you're going to cause inflation. If there's only a, an X number of widgets in the economy and the public and private sector are competing for it, it's going to drive the price up. If you take away their capacity to, to get those widgets, your prices are going to stay, uh, you know, at a certain level. But if you both are competing for it, then you know, the companies that are producing the widgets can put the prices up because there's a huge demand. Mm -hmm. You need to be inflation-proofing your budget process. If you're in the public sector, you've got to be planning very carefully beforehand before you start expending any funds to buy resources. So I guess I'm imagining something like if in my fantasy budget, um, say the government was going to offer universal childcare then maybe I'd, I'd want to look at that in relation to what's happening in the aged care sector or what's happening in hospitals and say, well, how many people have we got to work in all these areas? Yeah, yeah. Do we have surplus labour there, trained people to do that? Or are we going to have to provide training for people to move into that sector as mm -hmm. part of the planning? Also, will we need um, you know, new expenditure for new you know, buildings? What impact is that going to have on that, the building sector, right. you know, uh, how many children will, you know, where will the demand come from? Across what income? Are we going to make it universal? Are we going to provide it for a particular section of the community? You have to think about a whole range of issues. Mm. So when we're doing that, we're getting into what they call microeconomics? You might call it microeconomics, but I still think it's part of macro and micro working together. Mm-hmm. Perhaps we need to start thinking about moving to decarbonising the economy into a steady state economy. Mm. We can't just keep, you know, using resources willy-nilly. Otherwise, we're going to create an ecological disaster. If we're going to move to a green transition, and the governments now need to be helping new renewable industries start up and training for people to move into those industries and take them out of the old fossil fuel industries or whatever, the old haystack industries, and move into these new green renewable energy industries. They're the sorts of things we need to be thinking about as well. And do you see their neoclassical thinking as an obstacle in them acting on this? Absolutely. Absolutely. You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, a show all about the economics and experience of unemployment and underemployment 
here on 3CR Community Radio. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new t-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter at 3CR and Instagram at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855am. Keep in touch. 3cr.org.au I did hear an economist say that if we lose the narrative on this one, on this round, <laughs> and everyone walks around thinking that this current bout of inflation is because the government spent too much money during COVID, it cashed up everyone and now everyone's spending their money and it's gone ahead and raised wages. So it's really all these spendy working class people who are causing the inflation. We might have lost the narrative for another couple of decades, as we did in the 1970s. Do you see it as dire as that? We had stagflation. Wayne McMillan. High unemployment and, um, and we also had burgeoning inflation. So we had a wage price spiral when you have wages, a cost push, inflation, uh, like, you know, the dog chasing its tail. <laughs> but in those days, we had very strong unions. And so the unions uh, had much more power. We don't have strong unions now and we don't have centralised bargaining. So it's much, much more difficult for workers to get wage increases than it was in the 60s, the 50s, the 60s and probably the early 70s. So workers don't have the bargaining power that they once had. You've got to understand that in Australia, we don't even have a right to strike. Mm. There's not a legal right to strike. There's been a deregulation of the labour market. Unions don't have the capacity to do even secondary boycotts across different industries. The unions don't have that power that they once had. So there was actually a wage price spiral going on back then. I've also heard that it was the oil shocks that were driving that spike in inflation as well. We had two oil shocks, the 73, 74, then the 79. Do we have any lessons to learn from that era that we can apply now? What we could learn, I think, is that um, wage increases must come in line with productivity gains. I don't think that was the case in the 1970s. And then those days, the unions had a lot of power and they just wanted to keep up with the cost of inflation. But the productivity gains weren't there to justify the increases in the wages. So I think that most of the unions now, they would understand that. Of course, they're concerned about the cost of living, but wages not keeping up with it. But I think that that uh, is a different situation to what we've got today now than what we had in the 70s and even the early 80s when the accord came into place. So if in the ideal world union organising was to happen again and, and working people did have a good bargaining position, how would you prevent the wage price spiral from breaking out again? 
you know, wage increases need to be in line with productivity gains. But also we've got to be concerned, okay, that workers are not losing with the cost of living. So we need to maintain some sort of control over prices so that wages are in line. They keep up with the cost of living. So the things I mentioned about price controls, you know, um, monitoring of where there's price gouging, ensuring that uh, certain services are provided by the government at a lower cost than what could be provided in the private sector mm. so that the cost for ordinary people would be less. So many services in the public sector have been contracted out or they've been run down to the point where you don't have a good service, they've sold it off right. or contracted out the service. You're talking about privatisation. <laughs> yes, that's right. Privatisation, contracting out. In lots of cases, the public sector can provide better services, better infrastructure, better research and technology than the private sector can. Lower medical costs for ordinary workers. Mm. We can do it at a cheaper price. A lot of the knowledge and expertise has been lost it's gone and you get a second-rate service the people that are coming in there don't keep up with the community service obligations they're supposed to all they're worried about is the bottom dollar making a buck and that's about it they can't make a profit they don't care well that's to do with that ideology isn't it that the profit motive will result in a better service or better product yes um, so it's interesting that you link that idea of the government providing services and I guess we're thinking things like education and health and... Childcare. Childcare. Yes. That that actually would have an um, anti-inflationary effect. Yes. It's amazing how complex and interrelated all the real solutions to inflation are as opposed to just going, and the cash rate will now be 0.85% whatever. And if you don't get your economics, you won't understand what a missed opportunity we are looking at at the moment for a new Labor government to really deal with what's affecting people. We've got a big problem. You know, Mr Jim Chalmers, Chris Bowen, Andrew Lee, who was a shadow treasurer and a professor of economics. I mean, Mm. they're all in the neoclassical... Some of them are less so, but certainly Jim has swallowed hook, line and sinker a lot of the neoclassical stuff. Uh, My job is to paint the true picture uh, of the economy and our economic challenges. Treasurer Jim Chalmers. And today's decision, in addition to the pressure it will put on family budgets, will also make it more expensive Uh, for the Commonwealth Government to service uh, that trillion dollars of debt uh, in the budget. It was already costing around $20 billion a year, give or take, uh, to service that debt that we've inherited. You know, part of that debt uh, will be impacted by these rising interest rates. Every additional dollar in the budget is a borrowed dollar, and that now costs us more to pay back because of rising interest rates. The rising cost of servicing government debt. The trillion dollars of debt that we inherited from our predecessors. The budget is absolutely heaving uh, with Liberal debt. We have to be upfront with people. We can't do everything that we would like to do. We can't even afford uh, the good ideas that people put to us. That's just the reality. Every additional dollar in the budget is a borrowed dollar. That's just the reality. That trillion dollars of debt in the budget. The budget is absolutely heaving. The trillion dollars of debt. 
the budget is absolutely heaving. Every additional dollar is a borrowed dollar. That's just the reality. A uh, trillion dollars in debt. Liberal debt. Public debt. Government debt. 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 Government debt. 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 Government debt. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. We need to be honest and upfront with the Australian people about the nature, the severity, the magnitude of this inflation challenge that we confront. We can't even afford uh, the good ideas that people put to us. He's got an advisor who's a died in the wool, New Keynesian. I'm not going to mention his name, but, you know, he's getting advice from that person. Yeah, all of them. Uh, Andrew Charlton, who won the seat at uh, Parramatta, who's an economist who actually studied with a leading economist over the United States, Joe Stiglitz. Okay. Well, Joe certainly did a fairly long time ago realise that neoclassical economics was flawed in lots of different ways. He, he understands the faults in neoclassical economics even though he's more conservative than probably some of the people that are in the heterodox camp. But I'd probably call him a heterodox New Keynesian or Neo Keynesian, probably <laughs> <Okay>. more apt. <laughs> what will your message be to a relatively young new treasurer of Australia? The responsibility of the treasurer is really to make sure that the budget, the money, is used to improve the well-being of the people of Australia. Professor Joseph Stiglitz, former World Bank Chief Economist, on ABC's 7.30 with Sarah Ferguson in July 2022. That's what money is about. Uh, that's what the economy is about. Uh, the economy is supposed to serve the people, not the people the economy. And we sometimes get that uh, confused. Thank you very much indeed, Professor Stieglitz. Thank you. They're think tanks. The Chifley Centre, the Whitlam Centre, the other ones you can think of. Mm. I mean, one of those think tanks wanted to bring out Larry Summers. They heralded him as a, a great economist and one of the most influential economist ever to come out of the United States. I sent them an email and said to them, this man did more to destroy the United States economy during his period of time in the, the Obama administration. And I thought, why are you you're lauding him and bringing him out here as if he's some sort of demigod in economics? He's caused more problems than solutions. I just couldn't think of a worse economist. So it seems like then that our Labor government is still very much wrapped up in this neoclassical thinking. The main players are, but there are economists in the Labor Party who understand what modern monetary theory is talking about. And A very small number, of course, but unfortunately they're not able to influence the policy positions. Mm. I actually think we need to influence from different points of contact across the community. We need to get out into the schools. We need to get education there. We need to get into the universities. We need to get into the unions, even to get into the churches and tell them, local government, and trying to influence them through there. 
there's not one organization that we shouldn't be getting into. Yeah. I've had a talk with one of the people who's one of the thinkers in the Australian Association of Local Governments, trying to get him to see a new fiscal federalism because local government is in huge budgetary problems at the moment. They're very constrained budget-wise in providing some of the basic services that they need to provide. And that's because the federal government is not giving them enough funds via the state government. The state government is constrained. It has to run a budget like a household budget. What are you going to do? If you don't get more income, you're going to sell some of your assets or borrow more money from somewhere to get what you need. Yeah, I think if you were in local or state government and you understood the capacity of the federal government to fund these sorely needed places, then you would get up in arms about how both sides of government are running the country, how they think they should not do the spending. (laughs) Absolutely. It's more than tragic, isn't it? Well, let's leave them aside. We we don't need them. (laughs) They're obsolete. It's the ordinary person in the street that we need. That's the person, the voter. Mm. They're the people that we need, the ordinary workers, even the small business owners. They're the people we need to be talking to and reaching. Forget Mm. about the politicians because the politicians will always look after themselves and they'll always look after who's putting money into their political parties to fund them for the next election. And hopefully even just this little conversation will be part of moving the public conversation about where the the public money is spent. (laughs) Thank you very much, Wayne, for your time and um, good to get to know you a little bit more. It's been a delight. I've really enjoyed myself and... uh, Can I say, you know, what you're doing is magnificent. I just applaud you 100%. We need more people like you doing what you're doing. Oh, thank you very much, Wayne. Thanks for that vote of confidence. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. This is Bill Mitchell. You're listening to my favourite Melbourne radio station, 3CR, with Anne and Kev, Unemployed Workers Fight Back Program. Great program. Great guests. Now, if we're talking about inflation, there's always this target they talk about, which is 2 to 3%. And I've always wondered why we have to have inflation. Why, why does a brick that's used to build a house become more and more expensive over time? It's still a bloody brick. It's something that was pulled out of the ground, fired up and turned into a brick. How, how can it keep on increasing in value? Yeah. yeah. I think they just pulled it out of thin air. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, my understanding of it is that um, if you have a an inflation rate that's around 2 or 3%, mm. uh, the orthodox view that governments deal with long-term debt, mm. where you might be in World War II, you've knocked up enormous so-called debt, government debt, because you've had to purchase planes and tanks and that sort of stuff. Uh, how do you deal with that? Well, if you can push paying that debt back off over time, in 30 years' time, in 40 years' time, with a slow rate of inflation, that debt shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. And that's the orthodox way of explaining how governments can shrink their debt over time. The issue that I think is more important for us to focus on, it's not one for monetary policy, is how as a society we're going to pay for the increasing demands on the public purse. Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe speaking on ABC's 7.30, 14th of June, 2022. Understandably, the society wants the government to finance spending on a whole range of social services, including disability, aged care, education and and defence. So there are increasing demands on the public purse. 
it's harder to find out how we're going to pay for that. So the options, as Stephen Kennedy, the Treasury Secretary, talked about last week, is we can make sure the economy grows very strongly so that the pie is bigger and so there'll be more funding for everything. That's the best option. Uh, another option is to cut back in some other areas, but that's pretty hard, isn't it? And the third option is to raise more revenue through higher taxes, and that comes with complications as well. So that's the bigger fiscal issue. How do we meet the uh, demands that society is putting on the public purse to provide the services that many of us want? Of course, I have issue with that because I don't think government debts need to be worried about at all. So, mm. But that's my understanding of why having an inflation rate of around 2 or 3% works in a macroeconomic sense because if that inflation sinks too low activity stops and if the inflation rate rises too high things get too heated and people panic and things become too irregular so mm. uh, and I'm I'm observing but I think the reason they go for this 2 to 3% rate is because it's comfortable in our macroeconomic settings mm. yeah well, I'd like to hear no offense Kevin but I'd like to hear from I'm a handyman <laughs> and I bought a house <laughs> You know, I lost my house. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm paying rent again. I won't, I won't take financial advice off you, but no, don't take it financial yeah. advice from me. If you want to know how to fix your door, I can do that. Yeah, so I would like to hear what the economists have to say about rates of inflation. What happens to the global economy if we can't get inflation under control? I'm not sure inflation is the most significant problem. Professor Joseph Stiglitz former World Bank Chief Economist, on ABC's 7.30 with Sarah Ferguson in July 2022. We're facing uh, a crisis in our democracy. We're facing climate change. Um, to me, these are far more important issues than inflation. We will get inflation under control. Um, I worry that if we raise the interest rates too fast and too much, we will have a global recession. You know, paying more for food is hard. Not having a job at all is even harder. So we shouldn't obsess on interest rates as the single lever. Exactly. Um, our official inflation target is 2 to 3%. Is that figure too low? I mean, will it require too much pain to the economy to reach that target? Well, first let me say, where did that number 2 to 3% come from? It was pulled out of the thin air. There was no scientific basis. It's now become a convention. Uh, one doesn't want to have runaway inflation, but there's very little evidence that uh, going up to 4 or 5% will lead to runaway inflation. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. One of the things that Wayne said that I thought was very intriguing is what is the solution to these supply side issues around inflation? And he had a very similar approach to what I saw Bill Mitchell writing about in his blog back in July 2022. And both of them talk about things that aren't necessarily intuitive. Like they're not the first thing that I would think about. So, for example, Bill says 
if you want to deal with the current inflation, the government should announce that all public transport in Australia will become free forever, immediately. (laughs) And I'm like, why has Bill started to talk about public transport in relation to inflation? And he says, well, basically what that would do is give you a cost of living relief as people substitute away from using cars to taking trains and trams. And I guess that does rely on you having trams and trains to take. <laughs> yeah, but well, that, that makes sense. What he's saying is um, you've got inflation occurring. If you pump more money into the wages to address the inflation issue, you start a spiral. So a better way to do it is to relieve the, the everyday costs of people instead. Free transport might be a way of doing it. Another way of doing it is government regulation, uh, government regulation over gas prices, reserving a certain amount of gas for domestic use and capping the price on it and saying, right, you guys want to make your profit, that's fine. Go make your profit elsewhere if you want to be greedy bastards and <laughs> leave the locals alone. That's just called government regulation. Mm-hmm. The liberals are always talking about getting government out of the way. We need government regulation for stuff like that. Otherwise, we get burnt. That's right. So we shouldn't pretend that the government is just helpless in the face of all this price gouging. No. In fact, they have the authority and the capacity if they want to deal with it. So that's why I think it's so wonderful to get a little bit of economics under your belt because at least for me it really opened my eyes to all of these lies that we're swimming in, these lies about government being inefficient, these lies about government. Lies, (laughs) Damn lies. (laughs) So anyway, problem solved, Kevin. Excellent. We just need more government public services and we'll be able to beat this inflation. You're going to start calling your socialist to keep that talk up, (laughs) Anne. They'll be calling me Anne the Red. Red Anne. Red Anne, that's right. Well, Have we run out of time again? I think we're heading there, Kevin. We're up against the wall. We better make way. Mafalda's coming up next with Vicky. Always an excellent show, especially if you speak Chilean. Um, <laughs> Thanks again for joining us, Larry and Larissa, and putting up with yet more talk about inflation. Thank you, Anne, for doing all the heavy lifting again and interviewing Wade, etc. It's always a pleasure. See you next time, Kevin. You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join us the second and fourth Friday of each and every month as part of The Sewer Show on 3CR. Listen to this show as a podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. We thank all our guests, and I thank you, Anne. And I thank you, Kevin. No, 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 the pleasure was all mine. Oh, no, Kevin, the pleasure was all mine. You mean all the pleasure was yours? Kevin, I think I took all the pleasure on this one. <laughs> well, if you took all the pleasure, that means I, there's no pleasure for me at all. And I, oh. I quite enjoyed myself. So if you've got all the pleasure, then what, I had no I had no pleasure? I think we should share the pleasure. <laughs> well, we're going to have to share the pleasure because, you know, like, I don't mind you having pleasure, that's great. You have as much pleasure as you like, but don't take all the pleasure. Well, it was very pleasurable, so I'm glad that it was pleasurable for you and it was You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.